0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild.
1: And then by the late 1970s, the deer population started to explode in southwestern Pennsylvania. And that was a time when big changes were occurring in, in deer management and in deer populations throughout the state. And one of the best examples I can give you is Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered
0: Podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 58, Talking Deer with a PGC Land Manager. Today, I'm joined by John Denson. He's a former land manager for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, This is a guy that uh, really created his own future. He was, uh, you know, after graduating high school, uh, did go to college, but soon figured out that that wasn't what he wanted to do. So he went to the Game Warden Academy and became a, at the time, conservation officer for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And after years of working as a game warden, uh, worked his way up into a land manager position. So we talked a little bit about uh, what his job entailed, how he got to that point and you know what it means to manage deer at a state and wildlife management area level uh and and the kind of work that the game commission is continuing to try to do uh, to try to manage our deer population Welcome back, everybody. I have a very special guest with me today, John Zemian. I'd say that correctly, John. Yes. So, how are you doing today, John? Pretty good. Uh, I've already given a, a quick intro uh, to give people a little bit of background, but can you just uh, just so all the listeners know what what do you feel is important for them to know about your background?
1: Sure thing. Uh, the, the first thing is, like many of Pennsylvania hunters, I grew up uh, in Western Pennsylvania and I grew up hunting rabbits and ringnecks in around Newcastle. I uh, was born and raised just south of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. So back then the big goal in life was to someday get to go up the mountains and hunt deer. And uh, I loved the outdoors. was lucky my, my dad took me hunting all the time for rabbits, a few ringnecks around then. And I uh, finally graduated to coming up north to north central Pennsylvania to hunt deer. And from there, I went on to work for the Pennsylvania Game Commission for 36 years, and a lot of the uh, work I did focused on deer management. So that's kind of what brings me to where I am today.
0: Yeah, this is um, this has been a pretty cool morning for me. Yeah,
1: you know, we've been uh,
0: we've been talking for about two hours already uh, before we started recording, and driving around to a couple of different game lands, uh, seeing some fencing areas, and, and getting to listen to you talk. Uh, a little bit about deer and habitat management and, and native species of plants around here. This has been very informative for me and something that, that I really like. And um, just for the listeners out there, you, you may hear some birds. Uh, you may hear some some running water. We're uh, sitting in a game lands now, uh, in the back of a back of the truck, uh, listening. You know, recording this. So uh, we are on location for this recording. So. John, with your wealth of experience working with deer management and um, the habitat side, uh, can you just sort of breeze over as, as best you can sort of the some of the big points when it comes to deer management that maybe some people don't realize or don't grasp the concepts of? Can you give me like that? What's that one big thing, especially hunters or even you know non-hunters that you know, they just see deer in their backyard. What's that big misconception about deer in Pennsylvania?
1: Well, that's a, that's a good one because there's about a 100 different factors that go <laughs> into that. But it, it starts, like I said, when I was growing up, uh, hunting small game and hoping someday to graduate to big game deer hunting. And when I first came up to the northern part of the state to deer hunt, a lot of the guys I hunted with were just like a lot of people today. You know, we got to not shoot the doe. We want more deer, so we, we don't want to shoot the doe. So that's probably one of the biggest um, misconceptions of all time when it comes to deer management. You know, if we just stop shooting the doe, we'll have all the deer we want and we'll have all the bucks we want. So I was raised that way. And luckily I came up north to go hunting. And we hunted some of the most remote places in Pennsylvania. If you've ever heard of the Hammersley wild area in Potter County and Clinton County and Cameron County. uh, Really remote areas back in the woods. So my first couple of years of hunting with the guys I hunted with it was only buck hunting no nobody in the whole crew hunted does and uh, we we killed a few deer uh, we got one eight point the biggest deer we killed Probably in the first five years of hunting in southern Potter and northern Clinton County was an eight point with about a 12 inch spread and it was like the trophy of the time and that was in 1971 so I looked at the forest that I was hunting in and I decided hey i I want to move up north here and, and learn more about this, you know, and help the deer herd out. So, luckily, I was able to do that. And in the uh, early 1970s, I got a job working in Cameron County with the Bureau of Forestry, and spent day after day out in the woods. I was a forest ranger for them, and then a laborer for them. Then I got hired by the Game Commission as a laborer, uh, working on wildlife habitat. You know, putting in food plots for white-tailed deer. And trees and browse for white-tailed and, deer. And
0: food plots were happening in the 70s? Oh yeah. Really?
1: We, we've had food plots on state game Land since the 1930s and 40s. Oh, okay. So that, yeah, that's been a long, long-term item, uh, food plots. So I, I got to do that at the ground level. You know, I was out there with the chainsaw with the farm tractor, plowing, planting, seeding, and, and learning it by actually doing it. And then as time went on, I was able to uh, go to the Ross Leffler Training School and become a game protector. We were called game protectors back then. And uh, the the school was located in Brockway, Pennsylvania, the Ross Leffler School of Conservation. So I went to that school in uh, 1981, graduated in 82, and got sent to McKean County. In McKean County, I spent 12 years doing law enforcement, but what a lot of people don't realize in Pennsylvania is the conservation officers, or the game protectors, and today they are now called game wardens, they also do the educational work for the Game Commission. We have a Bureau of Information and Education, so all the hunter education classes, all the information about wildlife, about habitat, it's filtered through the game wardens these days. So that's our educational arm and I took that very seriously, a lot of our guys do, and started to develop programs and what program did I need to develop the most what was the biggest item everybody always talked about? you know how many deer are there this year? Did you see <laughs> any deer when you were out in the woods it It had to be a program that focused on deer and what you find out when you start looking at deer and deer habitat it's connected to all the other things in wildlife. Wildlife habitat that's good for warblers is also good for white tailed deer. Wildlife habitat that's good for rough grouse is good for white tailed deer and wildlife habitat that's poor for rough grouse or poor for warblers can be poor for whitetail deer also so you have to look at all the parts of the picture if you want to do a good deer management program
0: and you know man when it comes to managing that habitat for wildlife uh, you know it's pretty much the exact opposite of what most people want to see you know i mean i try to tell people all the time that you know when you go to a, a state park um, or a state forest that has been managed for people, it looks beautiful. You have these big, tall trees you can see for a couple hundred yards. Maybe there's some ferns on, on the ground. For sure. But that's not good for wildlife. You know, wh- Whenever you look at, at some woods that looks like a mess, like I don't even want to walk through there, that's perfect for wildlife and, and, and deer, right? Because they're trying to get away from
1: exactly. us and other predators. When, when you look at good deer habitat, I've often told people if if your forest, if your state game lands or your favorite hunting place looks like a park with big trees and nothing growing on the ground, it's nice to be able to see a long ways to see if any deer come through the area, but it's also poor for food and cover. And the game commission, one of our, our biggest budgets is our food and cover budget or our Bureau of Land Management. Very simple, basic food and cover and often food and cover are the same thing. The same plant that provides cover for a white-tailed deer also provides food for the white-tailed deer. So those places that look like a park where you could set a picnic table out there and run around and and see hundreds of yards, those are not good places to have a high number of deer living, or a lot of other wildlife species won't live in those areas either. So,
0: you know, as a lifelong hunter, and, uh, you know, you're a lifelong hunter, you've worked for the Game Commission, we're sitting next to dave who was just on the podcast a a couple weeks ago you know he's also a lifelong hunter although we need to really reactivate him here
1: uh i was with him when he got his first deer i believe uh, okay wait okay okay. before
0: i go any further i got to hear that story (laughs) dave's first deer let me let me hear dave's first deer from john's perspective
1: well as a uh, game warden back in the 70s and 80s uh, hunting season was not the best time for me to get out and go hunting and I had two sons of my own and unfortunately first day of deer season when all you want to do is take your boys and go hunting I had to work and sometimes the work started the day before and worked all night and and all through 24 or more hours that day so luckily a camp right down the road from my house where I lived in McKean County was uh, Dave the father's camp and actually his grandfather's camp and I got to be friends with them and, and I was lucky because Uh, When I was out working, I got to be friends with Dave Jr.'s father, and he would take my sons hunting. They got their first woodchucks with them and and got to spend days out hunting when me, I was out working. So then uh, after the regular buck season was over and doe season came on and we had time to take the boys out, we took uh, Dave here out doe hunting one day. In fact, we had like four or five people out that day, and I set them all in certain spots within a mile of my house where I was very familiar with the the habitat and we had quite a few deer then we have as many deer there today as we did back uh, 30 years ago but we we put everybody out on their stands and I said I'm going to put on a drive and try to chase some deer past everybody and lo and behold I chased about five deer uh, that we had three people sitting and all three people got a doe and Dave got his first doe that day And uh, I remember he was sitting with his dad when he shot it, and it was, like, unbelievable. You know, (laughs) three people sat down, and an hour later, three people had an anerless deer, which was very good.
0: That's good. Dave, anything you need to add to this story? Well, when when John puts on a deer drive for you, you know it's going to probably be pretty successful, and we had some good luck with that. I will say he was kind and didn't tell this part of the story. There was actually a lead warning in McKean County for the number of deer I missed uh, (laughs) before that particular drive worked. So I appreciate John's persistence uh, in helping out a 12-, 13-year-old with his first
1: harvest. I do remember hearing a lot of shots. <laughs> so, yeah. I couldn't remember all the details. though. So.
0: That's great. And that it's stories like that, that are so common in Pennsylvania, right? And these, mm. these kids, you know, that are no longer kids, they're now our age. I mean, that's how people, you know, and older, that's how people are getting started being in the outdoors and, and, and starting hunting, you know, it, it's yeah, but, it, it's heartwarming to hear those stories yeah. you
1: know and I, I hope we can continue
0: that you know um although that seems like so, it might be a little tougher changing
1: a lot mm-hmm. but hunting is still a good sport for uh youth you know young boys young girls to get involved in and people of any age can be a newcomer to the sport so it's definitely a good uh undertaking for people to do and it's it's good for the environment you know it's good for the biology and ecology of the forests in pennsylvania so being a hunter is, is being a conservationist especially if you follow the rules and, and learn a little bit about what you're doing out there
0: so i mean obviously um as we talked about this morning we talked that the deer numbers in our state right now are just way over abundant uh you know and well, it depends who you talk it depends to. on who you talk to <laughs> but you know when, when you talk to the the experts mm-hmm. uh, not not the hunter experts but mm-hmm. the actual experts uh, the people that are biologists people are out there every day um, we have a, an overpopulation of deer especially in areas of high uh, people populations yeah, Allegheny County Allegheny County example. right
1: mm-hmm. um, so even that, where I grew up in, in Lawrence County I talked about small game hunting we, we would hunt rabbits you know all day long from sunrise to sunset never even see a deer track anywhere in the woods in Lawrence County and that was in the late 1960s in the early 1970s we'd see a few deer tracks and that was the big talk we saw some deer tracks today you know and then by the late 1970s the deer population started to explode in southwestern Pennsylvania and that was a time when big changes were occurring in, in deer management and in deer populations throughout the state and one of the best examples I can give you is Green County, Pennsylvania, if you know where that is, it's in the corner down by West Virginia. Back in the 1950s, when we had a, a deer season in Pennsylvania, they might only kill like 50 or 60 buck in Green County, in the whole county. And so a lot of the people that grew up in that area, Cannonsburg, Strabane, all those places south of Pittsburgh, they wanted to go deer hunting. They had to hop in their car, drive north to Allegheny National Forest, to Tionesta, or over towards Emporium, to the north-central part of the state. As time went on through the 1970s, deer populations south of Allegheny County, the southwestern part of the state, grew and grew and grew. And why did they grow? Well, it's, it's a pretty simple answer. The food and cover was tremendous for the white-tailed deer in southwestern Pennsylvania at that time. Greene County, Washington County were known as the grouse hotspots of Pennsylvania in the 60s and 70s It's because you had a lot of abandoned farms. Uh, Small farms were disappearing, and big farms were taking over smaller acreages, or I shouldn't say smaller acreages, but uh, smaller areas of the county were being farmed because the little farms went under, grew back into brush that was great for rabbits and ringnecks, and then eventually roughed grouse, and then eventually white-tailed deer started to populate those areas. So those low numbers in Greene County in the 1950s where they killed 60 buck, and maybe if they had a doe season, which they didn't have every year back then, Maybe they'd kill 60 buck and 60 doe. By the 1970s, they were killing 600 buck and 600 doe. And by the 1980s, look it up, they were killing thousands of buck and thousands of doe in Greene County and in Washington County. So the deer population southwestern Pennsylvania had just exploded. And of course, a lot of hunters thought it was great, but there's more to the story than just having lots of deer. At the same time, those guys that were from Greene County, Allegheny County, Washington County that had to go north to Tioga to find a deer or up to around Emporium, north central Pennsylvania, Potter County to find deer, they didn't have to do that anymore. They could hunt their deer in Greene County and Washington County. So by the time we were harvesting over 10,000 deer a year in Greene County, how many hunters no longer had to go north? I mean, if you're harvesting 10,000 deer in Greene County in some years in the 1980s, that means that probably twenty or 30,000 guys that used to go north aren't going north anymore. They're hunting southwestern Pennsylvania. So when I say there were big changes occurring in deer hunting and deer management, that's what was going on. Deer populations were growing in that part of the state. And in the north-central part of the state, where everybody had been used to seeing high numbers of deer for many, many years, problems had occurred, which resulted in less deer being available and less deer being able to survive. And that's one of the parts of the story that's never been adequately explained or told to many hunters in Pennsylvania. So you,
0: you talking about, you know, hunters from Greene County going up north uh, it makes me think of a story that my grandfather tells me all the time. His um, his father-in-law uh, used to do the same thing. Uh, you know, northern Westmoreland County, they did hunt on the farm, but it was annual every year for for the buck season. They would take two weeks off of work. Take about it would take about three days, you know, with between changing tires and digging out of uh, snow ditches and 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 all that stuff uh, to get to camp. And then they would camp out like, in a tent, you know, out of their old Model T Ford, uh, you know, and hunt for a week, hoping that you would see, you know, get one chance at, at a buck, mm-hmm. um, maybe harvest, maybe not, and then get back in another three day trip home, which is way different than, than what I do now. I mean, I still come north. Uh, I I still live in the same general area of where my grandparents grew up, but, uh, you know, I still come north to to Jefferson County to do my most of my deer hunting just more for the tradition of that. So that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, to think about the way the deer numbers are and how they, you know, whenever they change in one area, that is going to change how people hunt and, you know, change them in another area. But all this overpopulation we have now and we obviously use hunting as a tool to help try to keep that population in check. I mean, how did we get to this point? How there was there was obviously a time in the world history where deer lived here, they weren't hunted by, you know, almost at times a million people with modern firearms. How did nature how did we get to the point of having the population then to then we had the what, market
1: what controlled the population right that, i guess that's what i'm getting yeah what happened here, you know who who that, was that's involved a real good question and there's a lot of good answers and uh, a lot of people have looked into that and i find it very interesting too and uh, i'll talk about a couple things and then we'll get right into that subject but like you were talking about the old timers going north to hunt well my uncles they started hunting in potter county in 1934. And they would go north, stay in a tent, had beat up old cars and put up their tent and and camp out and hunt for a deer. And it was buck hunting only most of the time. And they hunted uh, north of Kettle Creek on the Potter and Clinton County line. And 1934, a little bit after that, they were able to build a cabin on state forest land up there. So in 1952, my dad started going hunting up north with them. And I'll never forget what my dad told me. He said... Uncle Don used to tell me that in the 1930s and 40s, he said, you'd see 100 deer a day. And he said, when I got here in 1952, he said, you missed it. The good old days are gone. And in 1952, my dad was still seeing 30, 40, 50 deer a day. And I started hunting there in 1970, you know, 18 years after my dad started. And my dad told me, you should have been here in 1952. <laughs> That's when it was good. The deer are all gone. This was 1970 and people were burning their doe licenses in little towns and restaurants and bars in north central Pennsylvania because there was hardly enough deer left according to some of the hunters. So putting that in the background, how do we get into that predicament of that perception that, you know, we used to have a lot of deer and now there weren't enough deer for the hunters. Okay, well looking at history is so important. And if you go back 500 years to before the European settler came here and made these drastic changes to our habitat, how did deer live here and what was the type of habitat they lived in? And there's, there's some controversy about that too because unfortunately we didn't have cameras, we didn't have pictures, we didn't have a lot of people writing it down. But we do have enough history to give us a, a pretty good idea. A lot of the forests were mature, however, the Native Americans did use fire. In Pennsylvania and a lot of places they keep mature forests from staying old with uh, less brush in them. So the native population would start a fire and burn five or ten thousand acres and then you had a five or ten thousand acre blackberry patch and then you had young trees small trees and shrubs seedlings growing up that made better hunting for the Native Americans that made better habitat for white-tailed deer for cottontail rabbits up in the higher mountains for snowshoe hare for rough grouse so even those people learned to alter their habitat, alter the landscape to their benefit for food so they could survive. How did the deer survive and in what numbers? From everything we could tell, deer populations back in those uh, prehistoric days or, or 500 years ago days were probably only around 10 deer per square mile and maybe... 15 deer per square mile but then of course if an area had been burned over and you had 5,000 acres of briars and saplings you would have a big deer herd living in that in that area so it fluctuated depending on what spot you were in but on an average throughout the state it was probably only 10 deer per square mile maybe 15 and in some places maybe only five deer per square mile after the European settler came here and started to settle Pennsylvania Williams Penn's day was over and The settlers got all the way out to Ohio and started farming the whole state, and then the logging era came in. That is so important to understand. During that whole time, hundreds of years, deer were shot 24-7. If there was a deer out there, it was put there for you to use for food, and you could shoot it. And the first laws to protect deer came on in the 1700s in Pennsylvania, protected them for six months out of the year, unless you needed it for food, and then you could shoot it anyhow. So it was wasn't until 1895 that any really strict rules came in to protect white-tailed deer in Pennsylvania. And when you look at from the 1600s to 1895 that uh, two to three hundred year period deer were almost exterminated from Pennsylvania. They weren't extinct, but they were becoming extirpated, meaning very few were left in, in most of Pennsylvania. So by 1895, the logging companies in north central part of the state and the farmers in the rest of the state were cutting all the trees over. And where we're sitting today, you look around and you see 70, 80, 100-year-old trees as far as you can see. But if you'd have been here in 1895, as far as you could see, it looked like pretty much a blackberry patch. A blackberry patch with small trees and shrubs growing in it with no white-tailed deer hardly living in it at all. You could hunt for weeks on end up here in the wintertime not find a deer track. Huh. So you could find snowshoe hare tracks everywhere. Rough grouse were plentiful. The limit on rough grouse was something like 10 a day. I forget what the limit on snowshoe hare were. But that the small game thrived because everything that they needed to survive on, all the good plants, the food and cover for small game was growing in abundance. And that same plant structure that was great for the small game is exactly what white-tailed deer need to survive in, especially in large numbers. But there were almost no deer left because hunters had shot them year-round for 200 to 300 years. So they were gone. Everything deer liked to eat was growing in abundance. Blackberry bushes, raspberry bushes, all kinds of wildflowers, young oak trees, young maple trees, hemlock trees, pine trees, you name it. And and if there's one thing you remember from the talk today, remember this. What is the main food for whitetail deer in Pennsylvania? I ask that question in a lot of places, and people <laughs> always yell out, acorns, you know. <laughs> So I'll hand them a bucket and I'll say, okay, go fill the bucket up with acorns. And it happens to be in July and they're gonna walk 10 miles and not find an acorn. You know, now acorns are a great food for white tailed deer, but not year round and not every year. And in some places in Pennsylvania, there aren't any oak trees. I live in the Northern hardwoods area where there's thousands and thousands of acres without a single oak tree on it. So although acorns are a great food when they're there, They're not the main good food for deer in Pennsylvania because they're not there all the time and they're not there every year. So I said, Now name another food. And the next thing they always yell out is apples. (laughs) (laughs) I hand them a bucket and say, Go pick me some apples, you know. And deer love apples, you know. And then somebody might yell out corn. And I'll say, Okay, we're sitting here in Elk County on a 40,000 acre game lands that's all forested. The farmers gave up on it because it's a big rock patch with trees growing on it and there isn't any corn within miles of here. So stop and think, what is the most important food for deer? And this is what I want you to remember. Small trees and shrubs, wildflowers and vines, all those little plants have certain species are what deer need to survive. And if you wanna have a, a high deer population, you better have a, a large amount of those preferred species of food. If you have a, a mountainside and it's covered in one kind of small tree growing, like American beech, we call it beech brush up here. You can have 500 acres of beech brush. It's so thick you can't see through it. A deer can be standing 10 yards away from you. You cannot see it. And it looks like great habitat for white-tailed deer. Well, it's great cover, but it's lousy food because deer do not survive well eating beech brush. They need to have little oak trees, little white ash trees, little magnolia cucumber trees, uh, little sugar maple trees, little red maple trees and all those trees they also need the seed crops off them and if you don't have a wide variety of trees like that for deer to browse on you won't have a lot of deer living in the area even if the cover is great you can have lots of mountain laurel and lots of beech brush and the deer that live in that area you'll never be able to find them but there won't be as many deer living there because those are not good foods now if that same area you control the deer population by harvesting bucks and those harvesting the anerless deer so that the browsing pressure of deer is reduced. All of a sudden, I say all of a sudden, it takes about 20 or 30 years for it to recover from damaged habitat, but what happens is less deer chewing on all those preferred species of plants, they start to make a comeback. You start to see trilliums growing in the woods, which are a great deer food whether you like to look at flowers or not, and there's no deer season in the month of May, but the deer got to eat the whole month of May, even though you're not hunting then, you know. So these little plants, blackberry briars, most people think of blackberry briars for the fruit, and they love to go pick them and maybe make a blackberry pie or make blackberry wine out of them, which is great. Wait till deer love blackberries too, but they don't wait for the berries to form. They eat the whole plant. They love chewing on the tender tips of a three or four inch blackberry plant or a black raspberry or red raspberry plant, and we've got Three or four kinds of raspberries and five or six kinds of blackberry plants growing in the state and deer love munching on all of them and in fact in a new clear cut in Elk County in places for year after year after year you couldn't find blackberries because the deer would come through and chew off all the blackberry plants before they got a foot tall and so if the blackberries were chewed off what else did the deer eat well if there was a little oak tree it would eat the oak tree and if there was an oak tree a red maple tree, a white ash tree, and a beech tree grow in there that eat the oak, the white ash, the maple, and leave the beech tree there. And pretty soon you had an overabundance of small beech trees and a lack of maples and oaks and ash, and the area couldn't support as much wildlife, whether it was snowshoe hare, rough grouse, or white-tailed deer, or even black bear. So those things are so, so important, and how, how do deer compete with other wildlife? I saw some tremendous examples through the years. When I started on the food and cover corps to make habitat better for game animals and for all wildlife in Pennsylvania, we had some fences that were put up in 1968. I started as a laborer in 1978, so they had 10 years growth in them. And it was amazing. The crews in 1968 had gone in and planted white pines, red pines, and hemlocks in areas where there was no evergreen cover left. And wildlife needs evergreen cover. when you live in a forest in north central Pennsylvania and it's a lot of deciduous trees, maples and oaks and ash and others. It's nice to have some conifers, some of the native hemlocks and white pines and in rare cases some spruces growing up here. Well those were lacking after the logging era went through and the fires we were missing a big component of our forests which are the conifers, the evergreen trees. So our guys put up fences planted evergreen trees in them. Why do we put up a fence? Because if you didn't fence and you went out and planted evergreen trees, the deer ate them all. And I have pictures of the CCC crews in the 1930s putting up fences to protect evergreen trees. I could take you back to those places now. 70 and 80 years later, the only evergreens in the area are what was fenced by the CCC crews in the 1930s. And the evergreens planted outside the fence mostly were browsed away. And again, in the 1960s and 70s, the Game Commission was doing the same thing. But along with the evergreens inside the fences, what do you know? Oak trees grew, juneberry trees grew, aspen trees grew, maple trees grew. All this native shrubbery that was trying to grow on the landscape made a comeback because deer were restricted from over browsing the area. And the next thing you know, along a stream, beavers moved in. Well, there were these big grassy open meadows where no beaver could live because there was no willows and no aspens for a beaver to chew over to make a dam out of or to feed on. But inside the fence where we fenced it to grow evergreens, aspens and willows and a lot of other small trees and shrubs made a comeback. The beavers dug a hole under the fence, chewed the trees and shrubs over, dragged them down to the creek and built a dam. So who would think white-tailed deer were competing with the beavers? But they were, they're both plant eaters, remember that. The plants are way more important than these furry animals we all wanna see all the time you don't have the right plants doesn't matter how much you want to have those animals you will not have them you want a good example how many antlerless deer are harvested in walmart parking lots <laughs> well we don't shoot those in walmart i'm sure
0: parking i'm lots. sure there's a couple across the state that well, are but uh these that's, days maybe. that's frowned
1: upon <laughs> but the point is even though we don't shoot any in the walmart parking lots there's not a big herd of deer living there because there isn't the food and cover and if your woodland starts to look Not quite like a Walmart parking lot, but it no longer has the hundreds of different kinds of trees and shrubs and plants growing that deer like to eat. Guess what? Deer aren't going to live there in the numbers that you like to see them in. So I just can't express how important the plants are when it comes to whitetail deer management.
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, you know, even for a human aspect of it, no one in in some in your kitchen at home you don't have just one type of food you don't have one box of pancake mix that you add water to, and that's what you eat every day for your entire
1: life. You if want yeah. a healthy diet you have to have a variety of different kinds of food right and if yeah. you're
0: you know when you go shopping for food you're not going to go to a store that only has two or three things to pick from. You go to the walmarts the giant eagles that have. You know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of products to pick from, and you're choosing what you like and what's going to be healthy for you. I'm, I'm glad Sometimes you brought, healthy for you.
1: <laughs> brought up your your home kitchen as an example, because oftentimes I'd have sportsmen out in the woods hiking around in the fall, and there'd be apples on the ground or acorns, and they'd make a remark like, "Oh, there's not even enough deer to eat these acorns anymore," and I'd say, hey, "Well, you know, acorns." have to be in abundance in the fall of the year you can't just have enough out there so that the deer can eat them all you have to have more than that so that new oak trees can grow to make acorns in the future too so uh, an oak tree makes tens of thousands of acorns over its lifetime to replace itself with one oak tree someday so you have to have more than what the deer and the squirrels and the mice and all the other animals bears love acorns elk love acorns you know everything likes them but you have to have more than what the animals can consume so some are left over to reproduce. And I give the example of your kitchen. I uh, say so your kitchen has way more food in it than you and your wife and your two kids need, doesn't it? Yeah, but if you bring 40 people in there three days in a row or three weeks in a row, you're gonna run out of food and there'll be no food in your kitchen. And it's the same in the woods. You have to have a surplus of food for, for many reasons for the wild animals and wildlife to live uh, healthily and, and in abundance. Yeah, it's not
0: a lot of people like to think that we as humans like live separately from plants and and wildlife, but everything is an ecosystem. It all works together and in conjunction, and when you have too many people, then you have a reaction by wildlife and plants. When you have too many deer or elk or squirrels and it's they're out competing other species and and have a detriment to plant life is what could possibly have a detriment to the to the plant life so it all sort of works in in unison and we need to look at it more in a holistic aspect as opposed to you know if you're a big deer hunter yes you want to you know i'm a big deer hunter i like doing things that are going to benefit deer but you can't focus on things that solely benefit deer you need to focus on things that are going to benefit all wildlife because it's still going to help the deer too
1: exactly and and uh when you're talking about uh, too many deer, I always try to stay away from ever saying too many deer because that's like that country western song about having too much fun. There's just <laughs> no such thing as too many deer to some people. But the fact is when you have more deer than what the proper vegetation can support and and when the deer are reducing the uh, variety of that vegetation and reducing the abundance of that vegetation, uh then you have a problem with a deer herd that is going to shrink year after year after year. When you have a high deer number living in an area, that's a temporary thing because a newly cut over area growing up with thick briars and lots of small trees and shrubs supports way more deer than a mature forest with big old trees in it. Even though the big old trees have better mass crops some years, they don't have that year-round food and cover supply that the young forest does. But can you keep all of Pennsylvania in a young forest? No, that's impossible also. So you, you have to learn to manage your wildlife numbers in balance with the food and cover supply out there. That's not real popular because we, we always seem to want more than what nature supplies. You know, we always want to stock trout to, to increase the number of fish that live in a stream because Mother Nature doesn't produce enough. We used to stock rabbits. We used to stock uh turkeys in Pennsylvania we still stock ringnecks we're we're trying to get more animals living out there so we can go enjoy hunting them than what mother nature can produce and we're finding out more and more that there's limits on on how much you can do in that respect especially when it comes to deer you, you just can't have more deer than uh, what the habitat can sustain itself with and if you do that it's temporary So one generation will have a high deer herd and then the next two or three generations are gonna pay for it with lower deer herds. And there really isn't any way around that. Uh, Artificial feeding was tried. I mean, sportsmen's clubs all through the 1920s up to the 1970s and 80s put out millions and millions of bags of corn for deer to eat with no really improvement in the deer population. You know, it really didn't do any good. In fact, it probably led to some detrimental problems with our deer herd. So you really have to keep deer in balance with the natural food supply. And somehow we have to learn to be satisfied with that and realize that, hey, in a newly cut over area, we're gonna have some good deer hunting for five, 10, 20 years, and then it's gonna slow down when the when the forest reaches that pole stage, temp, stage where it's not producing mast yet, but it doesn't have any small trees and shrubs for browse yet, you're not gonna find rabbits living in there. You're not gonna find snowshoe hares. Grouse are gonna become limited and white-tailed deer aren't gonna be able to survive there in high numbers. And then as the forest matures and you don't have 5,000 trees per acre, it drops down to 200 trees per acre and trees die and fall over and more sunlight hits the forest floor and you start getting those native shrubs back in there and small saplings again then your deer population can go back up a little too. But it has to be based on the food supply and the cover supply.
0: Uh, you keep mentioning you know, native vegetation. Um, we we have a big problem with invasive species as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and on our walk, a uh, couple walks we did, we you showed us uh, fenced-in areas, areas where deer... I mean, they could get into, but they're going to choose not to, uh, mm-hmm. more often than not. And there's a lot of native species growing up there, but then there's more invasives growing outside and less of the native.
1: Exactly. So, and can
0: you explain why just fencing in allows natives to grow? You know, what is it that's causing that change in the type of vegetation?
1: When you when you look at what deer like to eat, you know, deer have evolved with the plant structure around here for thousands of years. And they have preferred plants that they really, really like to eat, like little red oaks and white oaks are really high on their list. They're full of nutrition. Deer love to eat them. And then some shrubs like hobblebush or large leaf holly or witch hazel, different types of shrubs that grow in our forest. Deer like to eat them too, prefer them more than say, let's say maybe uh, black birch trees or uh, American beech trees. So what we did is fence some areas see if by restricting deer browsing would these native varieties of trees and shrubs come back and they did come back very nicely in many of the fenced areas in fact almost every fence I ever put up and I put up hundreds of different fences native trees or shrubs made a comeback in them with with no exceptions and why does that happen well the deer couldn't just pick out the ones they like and leave behind the ones they didn't like Roger Latham, if any of you remember that name, Roger Latham was in our first training class, 1936, with the Game Commission. He went on to become a biologist with the Game Commission, and then our deer biologist in the 1950s and 60s. And he also worked with Aldo Leopold, another big name in conservation. Roger and Aldo both made similar quotes back in the 1940s and 50s that if deer populations are not brought under control in the 1940s and 50s, he said, all the plants that deer like to eat will be replaced by things they don't like to eat. And you will have far fewer deer in the future. And you'll have forests that are full of ferns that deer don't like to eat. And, and you'll be missing all these plants that they do like to eat. And they hit the nail on the head. Today, in, our, in the modern era, where we have people traveling the world, every, every spot in, on earth people go to on a frequent basis, and we have plants from all over the world that, travel with those people, whether it's a seed stuck in their shoestring or whether it's a plant that they bought in, in a different country and brought it home to decorate their yard with. We have all kinds of non-native plants being planted on purpose or by accident throughout Pennsylvania and throughout the whole United States. Some of these plants escape into the wild. Most of them don't, but a few do, and the ones that do if the deer don't like to eat them, because they're not a natural native supply of food that they're used to, they can become an invasive problem. And the one we looked at this morning is called glossy buckthorn. People used to plant it in their yard uh, for, for decorations. They planted it because it produced a berry they thought birds would like. They planted it and trimmed it like hedges around their yard. And lo and behold, some of those seeds got out into the landscape, into the wild. And started to grow and the native wildlife didn't like to eat it. The native birds used it just enough to spread it but not enough to wipe it out. You know if they would ate every seed uh, so some of those plants would have disappeared but they ate enough of it to spread it around but not to wipe it out. Deer don't like to browse glossy buckthorn so we go and look at one of our fenced areas. Inside the fence we have oak trees and white ash trees and sassafras trees and holly bushes growing and wildflowers growing and very few glossy buckthorns growing. And then outside the fence where the deer have eaten off the oaks and the ashes and the and the native shrubs like hobblebush and or holly bushes, things like that. There's no competition out there for the glossy buckthorn and it grows and thrives and the deer aren't eating it. And it's taken over tens of thousands of acres in parts of Elk County and over into Forest County in Pennsylvania and the national forest and on private lands, private forests, old farmlands, swamplands, it's become a major major invasive problem. So now we have all these thickets to the untrained eye. They look at it and they say, man look at that thick area that's got to be good for deer. If they'd walk over and look at it and it's a glossy buckthorn thicket, not very many deer live in it, hardly any grouse live in it, rabbits don't like it, the uh, fruit isn't preferred by a lot of our native songbirds. So it's become a problem, it, and now you have habitat that supports less wildlife, no matter what kind of hunting seasons you you have in place. Yeah, and another one that we
0: looked at that we talked about that, that my family has a problem, a little bit of a problem that we're trying to manage on our property is Maldiflora rose, right. which was brought over with good intentions, you know, as mm-hmm. you mentioned when we talked, you know, Planted by farmers as a sort of living fence.
1: Right back in the um, in the 1940s, there's a lot of articles in farm and agricultural publications, and even in the old game news about uh, farmers don't need to put up barbed wire fences anymore. They can use what is called a living fence. They can plant multiflora rows like a hedgerow along their pasture, and it grows so thick and is so thorny, it'll act like a barbed wire fence, and the the cattle will stay inside the pasture. And, and the wildlife can use the Maldiflora rose for food cover. And Maldiflora rose, even though it's a bad invasive and, and a problem for people, wildlife does like it a little more than glossy buckthorn. I mean, rabbits like to chew on it when it's little. Uh, we had places on game lands back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where we planted Maldiflora rose. It wouldn't grow because the deer kept it browsed down to nothing. They had already eaten all the native, good native plants. And and the only plant around was the Maldiflora Rose our crews were planting. They were chewing it off. We had to put a fence around Maldiflora Rose to get (laughs) it to grow because the deer population was so out of line with the available habitat. Uh, Today, it's not quite that bad in places. And Maldiflora Rose has spread through farming communities and, and become a real problem. When it gets well established and gets older, it's not that good for wildlife because the bottom parts are dead and it interferes with all the native plants that could be grown there. And other species are like Tartarian honeysuckle, uh, autumn olive. Uh, Autumn olive, bears love the fruit on it. Grouse love the fruit on it. But when it takes over a whole field and all the native trees and shrubs can't come back in that field because it's all autumn olive, it's still a detriment to wildlife. So that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to invasive plants in Pennsylvania. We, We have a major, major problem. There's some invasive grasses growing in the state now that are becoming an invasive problem too yeah and
0: it reminds me of uh, a little bit more of a modern issue uh, with some invasive is is the Bradford pear uh, which is an ornamental that a lot of people are laying for the last 20 years have really liked to plant in their yards mm-hmm. um, and they're pretty to look at and they produce a little fruit and yep. the birds think they're going to like it so they they grab it and they fly off but it turns out that fruit's too hard mm-hmm. uh, so they drop it and then now you have more of these pear trees growing in the woods and then it if just compounds down, the
1: problem yeah if you go down by Gettysburg I went down there uh, two years ago with the wife for uh, for some training down there and I hiked all around the Gettysburg area and Bradford pears coming up in pastures and in abandoned farmland and in in, uh, young forested areas by the millions. So, and it's replacing the stuff that our native wildlife used to live off of. So yeah, even something as pretty as a Bradford pear, which looks real nice in a park or lining a city street in Bradford, Pennsylvania or Dubois or Pittsburgh. Uh, it's not good when, when your forest starts to turn into a thicket of Bradford pear, glossy buckthorn, and multiflora rose. You're not going to have the wildlife there that we used to support.
0: Yeah, I would really, I know a lot of people aren't going to want to hear this uh, because I've told people this and they don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, we want to make our yards look nice. We want to plant things that are ornamental and things that just look pretty, right? Um, increase the value of your house. I would like to see people focus more on planting more natives right you know a a native red oak tree or white oak tree is going to look just as beautiful in your yard as anything else right um but unfortunately we already have issues with to with all these deer that come in and eat the plants you know the flowers that we're planting when you plant something that's native it it's a little bit harder if you have high deer numbers in that area to, to establish it. Definitely. Uh, so instead, we, as people decide, well, I'll just go to Lowe's and buy the deer resistant tree, mm-hmm. uh, which then spreads and starts to become this invasive species right. in our woods where we want the deer to naturally thrive.
1: It's, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, our native uh, American dogwood, uh, a beautiful plant, and it's, it's suffering from anthracnose, and also deer love to browse on it. Uh, Our Native American mountain ash is a great plant. If people would plant American mountain ash in their yard, they buy the European mountain ash and plant it in their yard to decorate their yard with. It gets these beautiful gobs of orange seeds on it in the fall and birds like it. Plant the Native American mountain ash in your yard. Uh, Devil's walking stick or Hercules clubs, another neat looking shrub that you can decorate your yard with, you know. Native hollies, large leaf hollies, native conifer trees. There's so many native plants that can make your yard look beautiful. In our forests up here, uh, we have a fenced area on a a game lands in McKean County that is 70 years old now. It was put up in in 1950 uh, by Stan Forbes and Roger Latham, and it was part of a deer study. And it's been protected for 70 years. I mean, wind has knocked it down at times. Deer have gotten in and out of it. But overall, it's been protected a lot. And you go inside that little bit over one acre fence on an 11,000 acre game lands. That one acre has more purple trilliums in it than the 11,000 acres outside of it. That one acre for many, many, many years had more uh, alternate leaf dogwood growing in it than the whole game lands. You couldn't find an alternate leaf dogwood on the rest of the game lands except inside that one fence. Uh, It had, I'm trying to think of some of the other shrubs in it. They're slipping away from my memory right now. But if the rest of the game lands only had one-tenth of what was inside of that fence on the rest of the 11,000 acres. If it only had hundred trilliums instead of thousands and 10 uh, large leaf holly bushes and 10 alternate leaf dogwood bushes, oh, uh, another great shrub that grows in our shady woods is red berried elder. A lot of people know what common elderberry is. Mm-hmm. Common elderberry, great shrub for wildlife. And the red berried elder, it grows in the shady woods and on Gamelands 30, 11,500 acres, you couldn't find a red berry elder anywhere except inside of one old 70-year-old fence where it grew in abundance. Produces bright scarlet red fruits that uh, songbirds love, deer love to browse on it, rabbits like to chew on it when it's little and there's branches close to the ground. So there are native trees and shrubs you can use to decorate your yard with that'll be a benefit to native wildlife.
0: You know, a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast, they're not... They're not black and white answers. There's a lot of factors that go into what the answer would be. So I know you can't give me a black and white answer to this, but just on average in the state of Pennsylvania, what would be a proper amount of deer per square mile? I mean, when we're you know, and I again, I understand that start, certain habitats are going to be able to support more deer. Mm-hmm. Some habitats are going to you know be able to support less deer but on average like what what is sort of the number that the game commission is looking for that would create a healthy ecosystem in our state
1: okay the, the number we're looking for and and it's it's so difficult to put a number on there that anybody will accept because this is, whatever number you give some people will scream that's too many and other people will scream that's not enough you know i want more i want less so before i put a number on it I'll I'll put on it the important thing. The important thing about that number is whatever number of deer are living there that still allows a wide variety of your native trees and shrubs to survive. If you're if you're getting back your sassafras trees and your white oak trees and your red maple trees and your hemlock and your white pine trees and your trilliums and 200 other species of native trees and shrubs, if you're getting most of those back in abundance then you have the right number of deer whether it's two deer per square mile or 20 deer per square mile. So then if you really want to put numbers on it, we talked a little bit about 500 years ago, you know, when there probably was only 10 deer per square mile. But that number could have gone up at times too. Back then we had Native American chestnut trees growing one of the most common trees in Pennsylvania. That's now missing from our forest. And Native American chestnut trees produced chestnuts that not only could people gather by the bushel but bears and deer and turkeys could use in abundance and they didn't blossom until later in the spring so oftentimes American chestnut produced a much more dependable crop than the acorns or than the American beech was a little bit similar to that chestnut tree and our beech trees today are, are suffering from diseases and not producing as many beech nuts so when when you look at what number of deer could live throughout pennsylvania on average you really have to look at every county in the state or every wildlife management unit in every township every watershed has a slightly different number it Mm -hmm. depends on how much of that is mature forest how much of that is suburban sprawl how much of that is mowed lawns which produce very little food for deer people see deer out there eating the grass in their lawn they're usually picking through eating everything but the grass looking for little clovers or little Mm -hmm. little flowers and stuff or even little seedlings from maple trees popping up in your lawn because the grass is not one of their big foods they'll eat it when they have to but they're going to pick out all the other stuff first and leave the grass behind like they do in a fern patch so that right number if you did a statewide average, and what to come up with that number, we look at how many acres are in different kinds of habitat, and that number we come up with is somewhere between 10 and 20 deer per square mile. Now, in the 1930s, our, our biologists back then said 20 deer per square mile is the right number of deer for the northern forests, but that was before the habitat was heavily damaged. Mm-hmm. Once your ha- habitat's heavily damaged, and you're missing so many hundreds of species of flowers, and forbs and forbs is just a word for weeds you know goldenrod could be a forb uh, different type of beggar tick weeds out there those are called forbs f-o-r-b-s an important source of food for for whitetail deer and other wildlife so when those are missing from your habitat you can't have your 20 deer per square mile 20 deer per square mile is in good mature habitat. Good seedling sapling habitat might have three times as many deer. You might have 60 deer per square mile. But let's take a look at that number. If you have 20 deer living on your square mile, how many deer per acre is that? I love saying it that way because it's not deer <laughs> per acre. And hunters are always saying to me, how many deer can live on an acre? And I said, no, 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 no. It's how many acres does it take to support a deer? Mm-hmm. That's the important thing you got to get through your, your concepts. So if you have 20 deer living on a square mile, that is one deer on every 32 acres. And if you tell a person that their forest has 32 acres and it can only support one deer, they'll think you're crazy. You know, there's got to be more than one deer can live on 32 acres. But 20 deer per square mile gives 32 acres for each deer. And when you start looking at it, and we've done studies, we fenced in, 32 acres and put one deer on it and saw the effect the deer could have on it. We fenced in 32 acres and we put two deer in it and we saw how that area started to lose its variety of trees and shrubs and turn into a birch stand. And we put four deer on 32 acres in a big study area from 1980 to 1990 and those deer starved to death. You couldn't have four deer living on 32 acres even though we had 10% of it in a clear-cut and 10% of it in a select cut and these are scientific studies that we did with living deer with the real plants that grow in a real forest in McKean County, in Elk County, and in Warren County that were done in conjunction with the Forest Service and the Game Commission and so that's how we know that 20 deer per square mile is probably the top end of what you can have living throughout Pennsylvania and still have your forest survive in a condition that your grandchildren will have deer to hunt someday. If you go above that, those deer, if you go up to 30 deer per square mile, you're going to start losing species after species of plant, and at 40 deer per square mile you're going to lose species after species, and eventually you're not going to be able to support the deer for your children and your grandchildren. You know, even though you might have a lot of deer in your present moment, and your present generation, if you really are concerned about the future, you're going to have to live with a little less deer so that the plants that are important to deer can survive. And then your kids and their kids will be able to see what a natural forest and white tailed deer population should look like. And deer that live in those numbers, is anybody going to argue that the bucks in Pennsylvania haven't gotten bigger since 2005?
0: Yeah, so that that's definitely a point I wanted to bring up was the fact that you know, when you have more deer in the herd, then there's less food to go around, right? right? So I don't know a single hunter or non-hunter that, you know, when you're driving down the road and you see a, uh, a two, you know, a forky buck, uh, you know, a nice little four point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, there's, hey, look at that buck. But I don't know a single person that whenever you're driving down the road and you see 120-inch class, class or in, if you're in Iowa, and you see a 160 inch class buck that whether you're 100 you're going wow look at that buck right Mm -hmm. if there's less food available for all deer you're going to have
1: smaller bucks and there's and there's a worse side of that than what you're thinking a lot of people say to me i don't care if the deer are little as long as we have a lot of them the problem is if you have a lot of deer and they're little there's only one way the future is going to outcome or the outcome will be in the future that is less deer Mm -hmm. the reason they're small is because there's less food per deer but they're not limiting themselves they're not saying okay everybody out there all Mm -hmm. the deer let's eat a little less food so more of us can live here we'll be smaller but we can all (laughs) live here it doesn't work that way they're eating every bit of food they can and they're trying to grow themselves into that 120 antler class or into that 120 140 pounds of weight that a white-tailed deer should reach upon maturity or even 150 to 170 to 200 pounds in pennsylvania They all want to reach that. That's natural for them. So they're going to eat as much food as they can to get toward their mature uh, weight and antler size. And people accuse the Pennsylvania Game Commission, oh, all you want to do is have a few deer, a few trophy bucks, and that is so far from the truth. We want deer to have the right amount of food because if the bucks can grow 120 class antlers, if they can grow eight points and 10 points, the does can have twins and triplets. So the bucks produce antlers. The females produce the young and if the if bucks can't produce nice antlers then the females cannot produce a lot of fawns and they can't produce their normal amount of fawns and then even if they do give birth to the fawns they can't keep them alive because they don't have enough food to make enough milk and they don't have enough food for that little fawn to survive when it turns to plant eating. So when we're trying to balance the deer population with the food supply. It isn't just to grow a few trophy bucks. It's so that the female deer gets enough food so she can have a normal life too and not go through her life struggling to find enough food to reproduce and have young. And that makes such a difference. If you're out there hunting in an area where food is scarce, a deer might have to spend fourteen hours a day looking for food. And if a deer's moving around fourteen hours a day and night looking for food, your chances of seeing it are better. But in good habitat, if a deer can fill its belly up in two hours and then spend the next 20-some hours pretty much hiding from you and resting because it can fill its belly up in two hours or four hours, harder for you to find that deer and see it. There's more brush to hide that deer in. The deer moves less, so you've got to become a better hunter. You can't just sit out there somewhere and hope that a deer is going to, a hungry deer is going to run by looking for food because in good habitat it already found its food and during the day it's just going to lay around and hide from predators, of which we're one of the predators. So there are so many factors that go into this and, and if you think about it and, and you really care about the white-tailed deer and their health and you really care about the future of deer hunting, you'll be willing to make the sacrifice and say, you know, maybe I don't see 20 deer a day anymore. And that was an aberration to begin with, uh, 20, 30, 50, 100 deer a day. That was not normal. And trying to maintain that is as crazy as trying to have the same baseball team win the World Series 50 years in a row. Or even trying to have the Pittsburgh Pirates win the World <laughs> Series 50 years in a row. Trying, to, to, trying to have the
0: Pirates have a winning record for five years in a row. Yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, you mentioned the Bucs, a lot of the Bucs being bigger since 2005. And, and part of that is, I'm sure they have to be bigger to be legally shot by most hunters. Right. Um, you know, and in our property, we have seen a dramatic change. Uh, we have all, you know, pretty much every buck that's ever been harvested up there is on, on our mm-hmm. wall. And you can, we have them chronologically across the wall and yeah. the top is the first years. And then you can see them getting bigger as, yep. as we get lower. But one of the things that really has made a big impact on me is I remember the first buck I ever shot, a, a small little four point. Um, let me let me take a different route. Uh, so one of the first bucks I shot was a beautiful ten point, um, an, an older deer uh, for that area. That was in two thousand three, I think it was. Um, and I mean, it was a big deer. I mean, that that's huge. That's that was awesome. Um, r- but at the time. You know, in 2003, whenever this big antler deer walked out, he was only about 130 pounds. Just a couple years ago, I shot just a nice eight point. Nothing spectacular, but I I was very proud of what what I shot. And when we weighed him, it was 170 pounds. Now, I think it was a year or two after that, my little cousin shot her one and only buck, first buck, uh, which was a beautiful 10 point, put my 10 point to shame. And that buck was 180 pounds. So while the, yeah, the antlers are getting bigger and that's, that's a nice byproduct, but the, the size of the deer is bigger. The body size is bigger. It's a healthier deer. Mm-hmm. So that puts me in my mind, the, the type of hunters that say they hunt just for the meat mm-hmm. and they'll shoot that small little six point, which is fun. Hunt your hunt. I'm all for that. But if you're truly just hunting for the meat, shouldn't you be waiting for an older deer that has a bigger, bigger body and has more meat on it?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, you know, not, not necessarily because if if you shoot a, a little uh, sixty pound uh, antlerless deer, you know whether it's a, uh, a male or a female, that's some of the best deer meat you'll ever find to cook up in your life. So too, that so. that's funny. And, and Mother Nature, Mother Nature, you gotta look at Mother Nature. Okay, what does Mother Nature harvest? Through thousands of years, Mother Nature, she harvested the smallest deer first. She killed off the fawns; those were the first to die during a food shortage. Those are the first that the predators get. The next one in line might be a, a a yearling, and the next one in line might be an adult doe. And the last thing, the last thing that Mother Nature could kill off was the big, tough old buck. You know. And then we came along with our desire to have big antlers hanging in our house. And we reversed that 100%. We protected the fawns almost completely. We protected the females almost completely. And all we did is put the pressure on the bucks. We reversed the the natural ecology of, of that animal's life out there. And so if you're looking for good meat to eat and you want merely in pounds, yeah, shoot a bigger deer. But it's okay to shoot the little deer too because then you're replicating the natural system that worked out there that allowed this wonderful forest to survive and allowed this wonderful deer herd to be here when our settlers moved in. Uh, big deer, little deer, you got to harvest a little bit of all of them and not, not try to just save uh, all the little deer hoping they're all going to turn into this great big deer, because they won't, because you and your brother, I don't know if you have a brother or not. I don't, only but, child. But uh, Dave and his brother... You know they probably ate the same food day after day after day, and did you grow up to be the same identical size? Did
0: not happen that way. <laughs> no. And I and
1: I got a brother. I'm you know I'm like 6'1", 6'2", 220 pounds, and my brother's he's like five inches shorter than me, and, and he might eat more than I do, and you know he's in better shape and slimmer and trimmer. But uh, so all deer are not going to turn into hundred eighty pounders. And all deer are not going to turn into 170-class bucks that are male, you know. But but there will be more trophies around in good deer management than than there would be under poor deer management. So, and really, that's a, the the trophy
0: aspect of that. The, the bigger antlers is really just a byproduct of having a healthy herd.
1: Exactly. That the, the antlers. I tell people that the antlers are a byproduct or herd control. And the antler restrictions to me is almost secondary to to having the proper food supply. Because if you had antler restrictions back in the 1960s, but we the deer didn't have food, we still wouldn't have great big antlers mm-hmm. like we do now. And a, a great example Potter County, uh, they had a big buck contest from 1959 to about 2014 or 15. And I went back through every old newspaper and I looked up every buck entered in that contest and they recorded the points the spread, and the weight for 50-some years. And I found that from 1959 to 1986, the size of the deer brought into the big buck contest was shrinking. It wasn't going up, it was shrinking. Hmm. Because in 1959 to the mid-70s and 80s, our deer population was not being controlled. Even though we thought it was, it, it wasn't. And the food supply was going down. So the average weight of the the bucks and the Brought into the Big Buck Contest in Potter County 1959. From 1959 to, I think, 1986, shrunk. And by 1986, this is the Big Buck Contest, the average weight was about 110 pounds. Jeez. The average spread in 1986 was about 11, or no, it wasn't even 10 inches. I think it was less than 10 inches. I'd have to look up my statistics on this. But it was like less than 10 inches, and the average number of points was 6 points or less. This was the big buck contest for Potter (laughs) County, okay? And then in 1987, we started the bonus license system, and we saw all of a sudden weights started to go up in the big bucks. And unfortunately, we were only checking bucks brought into a contest, and we weren't checking female deer, too, which would have been great science. But the weight of the bucks started to go up in in 1987. 788 89 because we had the bonus license and we started to lower the number of deer competing for food out there and the brush started to grow There was a little bit more food to go around per deer, but then 92 93 the hunters panicked. They wrote their legislators They said game commissions crazy. There's no deer left We gotta we gotta close down the doe season again We quit the bonus license system and it wasn't until 1999-2000 Gary Alt came on board and we looked at it And we said this isn't right. Well the Potter County Big Buck Contest proves what we were talking about because from 1959 to 86 they shrunk 1987 they started to grow a little and and then it's kind of stabilized it wasn't getting any better the big bucks weren't getting much bigger their weight wasn't improving then from 2000 to 2005 that's when we really lowered the number of deer in pennsylvania more than anyone has seen in most people alive today you know, and by 2005, deer numbers were as low as they had been in Pennsylvania in probably 70 or 80 years. That's scary for a lot of people who are used to seeing them all over the place, and it's hard to accept. And, of course, there were some reactions, and uh, the, the uh, concurrent season was drastically curtailed throughout the state. Number of permits was curtailed in many areas. And the thing is, following the Potter County Buck Contest, from 2000 to 2014 and 15 the weights of the bucks well from 1986 when they were 110 pounds the average weight in 2014 for the last three years in a row was 144 pounds the average spread went from less than 10 inches to about 17 inches spread 16 or 17 I, I have to check my statistics I have them written down at home and the weight was up to 144 pounds per deer, the The spread was much greater and the number of points was eight or more. So we proved that by lowering the number of deer there was more food to go around. We proved that by lowering the number of deer the habitat started to recover with all these wonderful plants that deer need to survive and bears need and turkeys need and grouse need and all these other animals, okay? And the the, the deer response was really impressive
0: yeah i remember uh 1998 was my first ever deer season i remember sitting in the rifle stand with my dad on the first day of buck season and um you know because yes my dad was hunting but he was there because you know he was getting me out there hunting so uh he actually kept a notepad and every time we saw a deer he was putting slash marks down for doe and buck Mm -hmm. um and all that and uh, i was unsuccessful that year but uh looking back we saw 120 deer in one day what year Uh, 1998 Mm -hmm. um then and it stayed right around there i want to say in 2000 in 2000 i think we saw almost 150 deer Mm -hmm. out of that stand now today on in rifle season we may only see 20 deer
1: Mm
0: -hmm. but we see a greater percentage of bucks. We see bigger bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, we don't always get a chance at a shot, but we see bigger bucks. And even the doe that we see in the first year doe, you know, the, mm-hmm. that year's fawns, they're, they all seem bigger than mm-hmm. what they did back then. So you might not be seeing as many, but you're seeing hey, if you go, a better
1: quality. If you go back and look at the history of deer management in different seasons, when we first tried to reestablish doe season, I think it was around 1906 when it became illegal to kill doe in Pennsylvania. It was a buck-only hunting for almost 20 years. And then when we tried to reinstate doe season, everybody was like, no, no, we brought the herd back. Don't shoot the mother of the herd, you know. <laughs> so we came up with rules about, okay, you could shoot an antlerless deer, but it had to weigh over 50 pounds. So we, we we didn't want to shoot the little ones. And we tried a lot of different things. But what we found in the meantime and up to the present is A deer in its first year should get up to about 80 pounds in weight. So a deer born in June 1st or May 30th by fall and December should weigh about 80 pounds. And at 80 pounds, it can actually reproduce. It can probably have one fawn. But a deer that only weighs 40 or 50 pounds or even 60 pounds will not mature enough to reproduce in its first year. So that was kind of one interesting thing we found about deer reproduction. So having... More food for that fawn to grow up with its first summer can be important to its, its reproductive capabilities if it's a female and also to its antler growing capabilities as, as a male. And uh, I have to mention this other group I work with too, the Kinzua Quality Deer Cooperative. This is our 20th year going into our 21st year. And in 1999, the year 2000, what we started doing over in the Allegheny National Forest between Kinzua Reservoir and the city of Bradford and Marshburg area, is we set up a deer check station. And we pushed and and got and and helped establish the the DMAP system in Pennsylvania so we could get extra doe permits for that area. But we didn't just do it willy-nilly and say, let's do it and see if we can knock deer numbers down. We put check stations in and we weighed deer. And we didn't just weigh the bucks, we weighed the does. And we also aged the deer and we did antler measurements. And just like the Potter County contest, we found that the average weight of the deer from when that program started was barely 110 or 115 pounds for the the bucks being brought in. I don't remember all the doe weights at this point in time. But by our last couple years, they were all up over 140 pounds for their average weight. Their antler size had increased. And once again, it wasn't, we weren't trying to make a big buck trophy area. We're trying to make a healthy area for the females and the males to live in. A healthy area so when a clear cut's done you can have snowshoe hares living there and not just a big fern patch with a few beech trees growing up in it. So all these things were considered and and, and deer were a big part of that consideration with the Kinzu Equality. So this year marks our 20th year and, and we have a uh, student at the University of Pittsburgh in Bradford, PA working on a summary. So hopefully by uh, january sometime we'll we'll have a good 20-year summary showing the results of properly managing your deer herd with dmap and allowing the vegetation to improve and uh, support deer and other wildlife
0: yeah and if any any uh consistent listeners are listening to this conversation thinking man all all this stuff they're talking about sounds awful familiar uh it, it's because i've had quite a few people from Quality Deer Management Association on, uh, I'm a member, and it's something that we've talked about a lot, and, you know, you all have hopefully maybe just heard the, the episode with Lindsey Thomas Jr. and Nick Pinizotto uh, with this new merger and this new organization that they're going to be creating the National Deer uh, Association with the National Deer too. Association, yeah. and, um, you know, that is one of when I, I've talked to my neighbors about also starting a, a cooperative. Uh, around our cabin and our property. And as soon as you mention QDMA, everyone sort of immediately goes to, oh, just trophy box, trophy box. But when we talk about it the way we've been talking about it, it sounds good, right? It's about herd management. It's Mm -hmm. about creating healthy deer. It's the exact same principles as what the QDMA has been trying to do for 35 years. Um, So, it, you know it's that as we've already said the sort of added benefit of having that healthy herd is that you're also going to have some nice bucks too yep uh which again i don't know a single hunter or non-hunter that sees a beautiful buck on the side of the road and doesn't say oh wow look at that one you know that's that's a nice buck
1: yeah um, one, one of the things that i have to mention too is i've talked to a lot of hunters through the years and i guess a real important thing is uh with this podcast and if you have a group that wants to come up and tour and take a good look at habitat the Kinzo Quality Deer Cooperative we can take you on a tour we'll work something out with you or I worked for 36 years on uh, with the Pennsylvania Game Commission did a lot of deer demonstration areas on game lands that still exist today and we'll work it out with the game commission to show you these things and you can actually come up and look yourself we're not making this up We've been accused, ah, oh, you guys got to get out in the woods, you know, you're sitting behind a desk too much. Well, I'll tell you what, I've been out in the woods, you know, some years, 366 days that year. And I'll tell you what, I, I've i been out in the woods way more working than I ever was as a hunter. And I've hiked through the woods for a week straight in, in February and never seen another human being out in the woods. And I can go hunting in lots of areas up here that I never see hunters in. And so we're not overrun with hunters in the north central part of the state and we're not over harvesting the deer in the north central part of the state. In fact, if more hunters start coming back up here, they're gonna be surprised. If if we could put the number of hunters in our woods today in some of the game lands in Elk County or in McKean County that we had in the 1970s and 80s they'd have dozens of deer running by them all day long and they might see 30 or 50 and some of them might see a hundred again. But right now with more cover, and less hunters the deer have more places to hide they spend less hours of the day feeding it's a lot tougher to see the deer so our our hunting methods have to change we have to adapt to the fact that there's less people out there chasing deer to us all the time yeah and and a lot other factors
0: that and that's something on our property you know in those early 2000s our strategy for rifle season was basically wait until Mm mid-morning because uh, all the people that were out hunting around our property were shooting their deer and or walking around mm-hmm. and they would push the deer onto our property yeah. and that's why we would see a hundred plus deer in a day they're they're pushing them on now that the when the deer numbers did decline there in the mid2000s people from down home said why am I going to go up there and not see deer mm-hmm. when I can stay home and I can You know, shoot a nice buck because there were some really nice bucks. And that was happening,
1: like I said, that started happening in the 70s.
0: Right, so our strategy has sort of changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's less about seeing these deer moving through our property and more about how can we naturally attract the deer onto Mm -hmm. our property and and give them a reason to stay there for a little bit. So rifle season, and this has been to the detriment of my grandfather and a little bit my dad, in rifle season it's no longer what they're used to. It's now what my dad calls extended archery season mm-hmm. we're hunting that property the same way that i do in archery season
1: mm-hmm.
0: trying you know trying to get that deer that is just hanging yep. out there mm-hmm. um or coming on for a very specific reason and, not and just passing not over,
1: through overrun with hunters moving all around all exactly. day long and deer running willy-nilly everywhere. exactly
0: yeah. and that's and as as you said you know if people start coming back they might all of a sudden realize oh th- this is different than i remember the last time i was up here we might have to change our strategies again Um, you know and like we talked about earlier you know this whole herd management the whole forest management it's ever changing it's Mm -hmm. always different so you know this year you may not see a ton of deer in the spot that you've been sitting for the last 30 years Mm -hmm. but in five years if things change around you it might all of a sudden start getting a little bit better
1: yeah we do we do our deer spring surveys on the Kinzu Quality Deer Cooperative we, we take 26 square miles and, and on those 26 square miles we go out and visit 260 plots on each square mile so take 26 times 260 we Sheesh. visit thousands of spots we count every bit of vegetation growing on those spots okay and some of the ridges like the one ridge is called Tracy Ridge it's one of the uh, oak stands in the national forest which is predominantly cherry beech and maple not a lot of oak Then we have this one big ridge with a lot of white oak and red oak on it. In years that there are acorns on that ridge, when we do our spring survey, we find that over the winter, maybe 20 deer per square mile lived in that ridgetop. And then, then you have two years without any acorns on that ridge, and we do the same survey, look at the same place, and we come up with numbers like two deer or six deer per square mile lived there over the winter. That doesn't mean that the deer population changed that much on that one square mile, it means that they move to where there is food into the clear cuts or into the shrubby areas, and like your your place where you hunt uh if you have seventy acres to hunt on, okay, and there's only twenty deer per square mile, that seventy acres has barely over two deer on it, okay, but really, there's twenty deer living on that square mile mm-hmm. that are using your seventy acres. It's just they're using it part of the time, and so if you hunt seventy acres you're hunting the same deer that the guy next to you was mm-hmm. 70 acres and the guy next to you was 70 acres, you're hunting deer almost a mile in every direction, two or one to two to four square miles of deer have a good chance of coming across your 70 acres. And without cooperation among neighbors, without better management aimed at the habitat, uh, deer management is gonna suffer. You know, you and, and there's gotta be cooperation among landowners and you know that that's not gonna happen hundred percent or be perfect mm-hmm. but through our rules and regulations and our education programs it's it's getting better and better and better we now have in, in the year 2020 we have way more support for proper deer management than we had in the 1960s yeah. back then they wanted to tar and feather anybody who <laughs> talked about those season and get rid of them you know so we have more support we still have a few people that you can't accept the fact that you have to harvest the analyst deer And we'll fight that to their dying day. And that's their right to be wrong, is what I always say. But that's not the way nature does it. That's not the way any natural system works. And it's not going to work. And so we're trying to do a better job now.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people really need to, especially if you're unhappy with the deer hunting where you hunt, especially if you own property, um, the Game Commission does what they can. But they're looking at it at a statewide level, and they're, then they're looking at it at a wildlife management area level. Those are extremely large tracts of land. If you want to improve the hunting where you hunt, you need to look at at a, a smaller area, like you said, you know, two, three, right. four square miles. And, and, and you know adjust, to work with your neighbors. And, and adjust gotcha. what you're doing mm-hmm. and what your neighbors are doing, work together, like you said, to make the hunting better in that little area. Because just mm-hmm. because it, this works on average for that wildlife you know that management unit doesn't necessarily mean it's the exact same fit in your area you exactly. know
1: um there might be you know and and the rules we make for those large areas uh, are not to micromanage your property mm-hmm. you do the micromanagement within the guidelines that we set up and our, and our guidelines are, are broad enough that you can harvest antlerless deer if you need to and you can back off if you need to you know I don't know anywhere up here where we need to back off a handless mm-hmm. harvest. And I, believe me, if you want to come up and walk in the woods with me <laughs> every day, it's not, I'm not sitting behind a desk and I'm not reading the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I'm out in the woods every day uh, with the animals, and, and I don't see a shortage of deer anywhere unless you consider a shortage not seeing what you want to see. Right. But that's different than what nature can support.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, just to throw an example out there for people, I'll go to our property. We have 70 acres. Um, We have four people that hunt on that 70 acres. Uh, That's only, if all of us get a doe tag, that's only four antlerless deer that can be shot on our property, which if you look at the browse levels on our property is not enough. Mm -hmm. So there are programs that the game commission has in place that you can Do what you need to do to help manage your localized property more than what is allocated. So we went out and we got, we applied and got three DMAP permits for this year. So now, theoretically, we could shoot just with the four of us that traditionally hunt there, we can shoot seven antlerless deer on that property. Now, when we do our trail camera survey here in a couple weeks, depending on what we see, we might try to use all seven tags we might only try to use three of them it sort of depends on what you know what the The herd sort of looks like what what the cameras are telling us um from just walking around the property and seeing the fawns on the property this year it was a pretty good year for fawns for us so i have a feeling we're going to be trying to use all seven but you know you really have to become involved with the process if you really want to make the herd a quality herd
1: and one, one of the things hunters hunter, hunters say what can they do well if you don't own land it's pretty hard for you to go out and improve habitat but by you cooperating with uh, the game commission the rules and regulations on proper harvests and on quality deer management ideas to, to make habitat better and to control deer so that habitat improves on its own there's a lot of things the average hunter can do even if they don't own property and one of the biggest things is you get a deer accurately report that deer. I've gone around, I've checked thousands of hunters through the years, at their hunting camps, deer hanging on the meat poles, deer in the back of their pickup trucks, deer where they didn't want me to know there was a deer, you know. As as I worked law enforcement all my years with the Game Commission too, 36 years full-time, I was a deputy two years before that and a ranger with the Bureau of Forestry a little bit. So I saw lots of deer, checked lots of deer, and even though I checked them, I found out that close to 50% of the deer I laid hands on that were dead, we never got a report mm-hmm. in Harrisburg about. And we still do that. We still go out and check 15,000 deer a year. We go to butcher shops. We, we go there and we look at 50 deer heads that are in barrels at a butcher shop, and we read the tag and we write down killed by Jake Smith, you know, November the 27th at 2 p.m., and we send that report into Harrisburg, and we say, "Tell us when Jake Smith's report comes in." And fifty percent of the time, or sixty percent of the time, Jake's report never shows up. So we we need those reports from you. And if you really want to help accurately improve deer management in Pennsylvania, report your deer. Report it accurately and uh, efficiently. You know, within. I think the rule is ten days of the harvest get yeah. it reported.
0: I I was shocked uh, whenever I uh, applied to be hunter trapper educated, and uh, the game warden came for the in person sort of inter- interview just to make sure you know you're you're an upstanding human being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he said, "Oh, I was I was happy to see that you've reported deer for the last four years that you shot," and I thought, well.
1: You know,
0: like yeah, I was like, well, yeah, like I'm <laughs> supposed to. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? And he goes, you'd be surprised how many people don't report. And I, I've
1: gone to people's houses and um, I tell the guy, I say, hey, remember meeting me in deer season? I checked you on, you know, uh, Irons Hall Road, and you had an, a nice uh, buck in the truck of your car. Uh, and, and I checked it, and I filled out a form. I said, we never got your report in Harrisburg. And the guy's jumping up and down saying, I swear I sent it in. I, <laughs> I sent it in the two days before Christmas. I remember going to the post office, and his wife's standing behind him shaking her head, no, he didn't send it in. He throws them away every year. He hates you guys. And, and I'm not making this up to make fun of anyone. I'm just telling you the truth of what has happened many times. We did a program in Cameron County one year where the, uh, the uh, game protector down there, he followed up on every unreported deer he could. And he, in a small county like Cameron County, it was a couple hundred deer. And he went and cited all those people, you know. And we lost almost every case in court because they all claimed they put it in the mail mm-hmm. and the post office lost them. I never knew the post office lost like <laughs> 60% of the letters so they, I sent.
0: They never lose the bills that come to me yeah, in the mail. <laughs> my
1: bills always show up too. But, but anyhow, what was interesting is after the officer did that, the next year our reporting rate went from like 20 deer in this one township where we really looked at it up to 200 deer got (laughs) reported and it and it became one of the highest reporting townships in the state for about the next five years because everybody was afraid they were going to get caught for not reporting their deer so it's tough to have people send in proper reports. It's tough, it's it legally, you know, how do you do it? How do you force them? It's already mandatory, right? and mandatory check stations. I've run bear check stations for years where every bear has to come through. If we, if we ran a, a deer check station the first day of deer season in McKean County and we had to check 2,000 deer, you'd be in line for like four days, mm-hmm. okay? And that's at like a couple minutes per deer. So mail in that report card. It's so easy now. You could do it on the phone. You yep. could do it on your computer. Well, and I will Please. say, I,
0: I would, I would like to see. This is just you know th- that whole what would you do if you could you know make a rule you know type thing. It, I would like to see Pennsylvania go to, and I understand that states like Vermont and New Hampshire are smaller, so it's mm. easier for them to do some of these things. And it's tradition, so they've always been doing it. But I would like to see us even go to. Um, a deer check station where it's not like the bear check stations where the biologists are there, you know, game wardens are there. They're, you know, pulling Hmm. teeth, all that stuff, but just, you know, small, uh, you know, make it where you have like the small you know, country store, we just have gas to go stations, gas stores. stations. You mm-hmm. fill out the quick little form. Yep. You know they that that the, there's a person there that does it. And the reason why I would like to see it, one, it'd be easier to have that reporting. Um, you get more accurate numbers, things like that. But then also, I'm thinking of in in the little town of Siegel. You know you have Truman's
1: store. We, we force hundreds of guys to go. You're going to the gonna store.
0: force hundreds of guys to go to that store and. Mm-hmm. Even if only twenty of them buy a candy bar there, mm-hmm. that's twenty more candy bars. That, there's a, there's that a lot of sold. merit to you that know, idea. Yeah.
1: You also have to realize states that do that don't get a hundred percent compliance. Right? No, you know, no, no, I, I and, understand. Yeah, you know, th- no matter what
0: have. rule you make, yeah. as teachers, Dave and I, we both know, no matter what rule you make, yep. it's not going
1: to be followed one hundred percent. I'd like to see that tried. If we don't do it statewide, let's try it in a few counties. Yeah. Uh, in. in uh, Give give it, give it a good try. See how it works. See how accurate it, it is. Yeah. Know?
0: Just just because yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. like I said, just to get people to stop at those little stores because yep. these little stores, these little places, they're they're closing up because they don't. They've been
1: closing up since I was in high school, and that's yeah. going to be fifty years.
0: Yep. And it's going to keep happening. It's only going to get worse, and it yep. it makes me die a little. And that's my mm-hmm. old man rant uh, mm-hmm. for you. So, John, I feel like I've kept you long enough. What you worked for years as a law enforcement side i want you to leave everyone with doesn't have to be your biggest bust. doesn't have to be uh, a funny story it can be anything you want but just sort of a a good sort of story or moment from that law enforcement side that you can sort of leave people with
1: well i was asked this question a couple of weeks ago by our training school class and they said what was your biggest story and i said i I have like 500 of them because uh (laughs) I'm not one that has this one biggest story. There are so many things, and, and tomorrow might be another one of those 500 great things. But if I had to say anything, I, w- I would say this. 90% of the hunters are are dang good people. That that would be the biggest take I have. Working for the Game Commission, the hunters I met, most of them are good people. That doesn't mean they all believe in deer management perfectly or all they all send their report cards in. But it's a good group of human beings. I mean, I checked... Lots of hunters, I caught guys doing things that, uh, that were embarrassing, the things they did to get a deer. And, and they were ashamed of what they did. And, and even 90% of them just wanted to pay their fine and not go to court, you know? So uh, I, I really can't narrow it down to one story for you. All I could say is I, I met lots of people. Uh, some other time, maybe I'll think up some crazy stories to tell you, but at the present moment, I would just, I'd like to thank the hunters I'm a hunter, too. I've been buying a hunt license for, my God, uh, way over 50 years, uh, 60, we're getting close to 60. But, but uh, I want to thank the hunters because most of them have been pretty good. They've, they've helped support uh, a great uh, wildlife management agency. Uh, great because we, we have over 1.5 million acres of land we take good care of, uh, even land we don't own. We do a lot of management programs with private landowners and with other public landowners. And it's, it's all because of hunters. So we thank you any age. If you're a first-year hunter or if you bought a hunt license for seven, 70 years straight, uh, we, we appreciate it. And I say that as a retired person now, but uh, I, I, it's been a great career meeting all these guys that hunt. And some of these guys were tremendous hunters. They could out-hunt me. They could kill 10 deer for every one I'd ever get. But sometimes they didn't have a clue what good deer management was, even though they were good at harvesting deer, you know, and they were still good guys. So I, I just want to thank the hunters for all the good years I had working working with the Game Commission with the hunters.
0: Well, on behalf of, uh, of hunters, uh, I want to thank you for your service with the Game Commission. And, um, you know, this platform has given me the ability to uh, talk to a lot of people within the Game Commission and... The things that I've heard about the game commission over the years by a lot of hunters, it can't be any further from what the actual truth is. The, the game commission is filled with, uh, just as you said, ninety percent great hunter. Ninety percent of hunters are great people. Um, easily ninety percent of the game commission are great people, and they really do have hunter and wildlife. Uh, issues you know at heart that that's what the, their goal is is to create good quality hunting experiences for people so you, um
1: you gave me a few seconds to think of one case I will, okay go I ahead go ahead you, you, as, as hunters you might appreciate this uh, one night we were sitting the, the the famous old sitting in a big field with a lot of deer and there used to be 50 deer coming in this one field night after night uh, in the 1980s And what's funny is right now, there's 50, 60, and 70 deer coming into that same field in the year 2020. But in the 1980s, we were sitting there, and two of my deputies were sitting there, and a car and a pickup truck drove by. They were spotlighting the deer. And my one deputy called me, and he said, I know the guys in the truck aren't spotlighting, but they probably have a gun, and the guys in the car are shining the light. He said, we we think we should pull them over. I said, no, wait them out, wait them out. Let's see what they're really doing, you know. So they left, nothing happened. About a half an hour later, the same car, the same truck came by. They stopped, and they took a shot at a deer right in front of my deputies. We started chasing. Before the night was over, we had four carloads, 17 different people out trying to kill deer that Jeez. night. One night, 17 people. And they confessed. They fessed up to us that uh, they were going to have a big, big venison cookout the next day. In fact, we were still invited to it if we wanted to come, but they won't—they won't be having venison. <laughs> They're going to have to go buy some hamburger. Oh but, uh, man, that was—that was quite a night. Seventeen different people out riding around trying wow. to shoot deer, and they had killed two deer. We—we we got both the deer. Wow. So, yeah, that... there are so many other stories, but that <laughs> did come to mind.
0: Well, John, thank you for uh, coming on. This was—this was awesome. Um hopefully when we get uh once that student from Pitt has that study maybe we can have you back on sure. uh, and maybe possibly if the scheduling line up maybe even that that student as well to talk sure. about that cuz I'd love to hear what 20 years of cooperative has has
1: done for that area. Mm-hmm. We'll do and I, I I felt like it was an honor to be on your podcast today. Keep up the good work. I mean we we got to keep on uh hitting people with all this good information about the environment. I mean, we've got to take better care of this planet. Yeah. Not just for the wildlife, but for, for everybody. Yep, so, I agree it's, it's 100%. Important.
0: And that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank John for coming on and speaking with me and, and sort of telling his story. Uh, we I spent a couple hours with this guy before we even started talking and this guy is just a absolute wealth of knowledge uh we barely even scratched the surface which i feel like i say every week but uh, i'll definitely be having john coming back on this podcast to, to talk some more because uh, the things that he knows the things that uh, he enjoys talking about I me mean, he truly lives this life of being in the outdoors it's um it, it's pretty impressive. Uh, it, Like I said, I'm definitely going to have him on, but regardless, uh, this is someone who uh, I hope really becomes a pretty close friend because um, he knows his stuff and I have so much to learn from him. But again, thank you to John and thank you to all of you for uh, continuing to listen every single week. I really appreciate it. Um, If you could subscribe, if you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you have some time, stop on over at our website, conservewild.org. Uh, We're going to start having some more articles posted here in the near future. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you can see what we're up to. Until next week, stay wild.